I was in agony during that dancing bit. I am an introvert. I hid out there behind the soundboard. Some of you loved it. You're not the people I'll be having lunch with after church. (laughs) I echo when it's always great to be over here. I love you guys, and you're so much better looking than the people in Manhattan. Um, Your venue is awesome. Last time I was here, I want to start off by showing you a trick this morning. This light I was playing around, I can reflect off of my head this pattern. Look up in the corner there. See, you guys aren't scientific. That's impossible. (laughs) But it's good to be here. You guys have light and heat. You don't get an infection when you touch anything like at our venue in Manhattan. So (laughs) it's always good to be here with you. Uh, Like Ben said, we are talking about something this morning called the Eucharist. That passage Ben read is just so strange. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. What does this mean? What is Jesus trying to get across to us? You know, for thousands of years, in nearly every stream of the Christian faith, not all of them, but in most dominant streams of the Christian faith, Each worship gathering culminates with the consumption of bread and wine for the very reasons that we see highlighted in this passage. It's not the only passage in the scriptures that say things like this, but it's one of the chief texts. And this culmination that we experience every week is commonly referred to as the Eucharist or Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. Millions of Christians every Sunday participate in this practice together. The word Eucharist isn't actually as old as the biblical text. It actually wasn't uh, used until the 14th century. But it's this word that we use to house this practice, this experience. Some Christians, if you were, if you were raised uh, in the Catholic faith, you might have been raised to believe that the bread and wine between the eating and the stomach literally become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, something called transubstantiation. Others believe that these elements just symbolize Uh, something, and that the presence of Christ houses them in a very personal way. And then still others just believe that Christ is present everywhere. Jesus is omnipresent. God is omnipresent. And the Eucharist is a spot in our weekly worship where his presence is given a bit more of a concentrated focus as we're separated for worship from our regular lives of working and resting and speaking and moving. And over the past few weeks, we have been looking at some ancient practices of the Christian faith and asking what they might mean for us today. What practical role do they play in a faith that's lived out in modernity? Should they be done away with? Have they reached their time? Should they be re-examined and reclaimed? And this one arrives on our doorstep, preloaded, because Jesus talks about it by saying, eat my flesh drink my blood. That's just strange. I suppose I would like to begin by saying that though at face value this looks like Jesus has gone completely round the bend and lost his mind, he leaves us this very graceful rope at the end of the text by which we can climb up out of the madness if we're feeling crazy. It's no coincidence that the Bible being inspired by the Holy Spirit also inspired these closing words of the passages, saying for us what we might be afraid to say to God for ourselves. And that phrase is, this is a hard teaching. 
This is a hard teaching. It's bizarre. Who can accept it? It surely is. And that phrase that's in there is just as inspired as the phrase is, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And that can come as a huge relief to us if we struggle with this too and we think of this as a hard teaching. Because Jesus leaves that in there because he knows that we struggle with things like this. And as we wade into this ancient practice today and we try to understand it better as people who want to know God better, it's my hope that above all, of everything we might take away mentally, emotionally, spiritually with us today, it's my hope that above all we'll come away from this gathering realizing that God is okay with us responding to the strange things he asks of us with phrases like, man, that is strange. That is difficult. I don't know if I can accept that. Phrases like that are where all true faith begins. In places of brave honesty before the great and powerful Oz. God is not out of touch and he's, he's not crazy. He's just God and we're just human. And he is fully okay with us pointing out that distinction as much as we like. In fact, that's why he loves us so much. So before we dig into this uh, thing called Eucharist, let's just pray real quick, okay? Vast God, we are so often less than vast in our understanding of you. You are difficult at times. Your ways are difficult to understand. The things that you ask of us are difficult, and yet strangely still, we want more of that difficulty because we know that in understanding it brings about something good. It's my prayer today that as we bring who and what we are to who and what you are, that we might experience an expansion of sorts. A widening of our understanding where we take the courageous step of acknowledging our hang-ups and our contradictions knowing that you are not alarmed when we default to being beautifully human. Thank you for drawing us to these places of contradiction this morning so that we might ask honest questions and not just present cheap answers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second President of the United States, First Vice President of the United States, John Adams said this, Christianity is the most bloody religion that has ever existed. That is so true. Christianity is a very bloody faith, and I don't mean bloody the way that Ben Grace would use the word bloody. But literally, Christianity is a religion that has a very bloody history. Christians are taught from a very young age to be obsessed with things like sacrifice, and death, and blood, and atonement. Do you realize that? That if you were raised Christian, you were thought to think about death, and blood, and sacrifice all the time. You and I are here today as supporters of a faith that is blood-obsessed. We love blood. We, we talk about it. We sing about it. We can't get enough of nothing but the blood. Like, where do you go in, a, in another gathering in society where you walk into a room and people are singing about blood like this? That's crazy. And yet our faith is all about blood. It's all about sacrifice. It's all about atonement. We cannot get enough blood. Why is that? Well, it's the fault of our predecessors. It's the history of our religion that weaves its way down through history. It's how 
our faith ancestors saw the world and they passed it on to us. I'm going to take about two minutes and at light speed fly through about 2,000 years of biblical history. But here's the thing. Long ago, cities were not like they are today. In fact, if you were able to get into some kind of time-traveling machine and enter the scene of ancient Judaism, you would find at the center of cultural life a living experience that was inseparable from its faith. There was no, faith is what I do this day of the week, and then I do what I want the rest of the week. They were so closely interwoven, they were inseparable. And this entire living experience hinged on one thing, sacrifice. Lambs brought by this faith's adherence, they were brought to this temple and they were killed by this priest to atone for a person's sin. This practice was based on many of the scriptures in the Old Testament, which wasn't a housed volume of works at that time. But at the top of the list was this passage in Leviticus 17. It says, For the life of a creature is in its blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. This was not uncommon in any religion at that time. Every religion was killing something to atone for the sins of its adherents. Some religions even sacrificed human beings. But all of this points to something. If you, if you think of it in terms of anthropology and you think of it in terms of spirituality, all of this points to something inside of human beings and the human construct. Man has ever believed, as long as man has existed, that the something behind the world that blesses us and curses us does so based on human moral performance. We can say that we have evolved beyond that today and that we don't really think about that too much, but we haven't really. We've just modified it and added more acceptable layers and more socially uh, easy ways to deal with this idea. We are creatures who are ever doing things we know to be wrong, and then we seek atonement for them later. That can be the extra hour at the gym you did for the unlimited beer and wings that you consumed the night before. It can be the penitent plea we make to to God to forgive us for doing something that we hate, that we know we shouldn't have done, that we did for the thousandth time, and we say, God, if you will forgive me one more time, I'll never do it again. And there's this kernel inside of us that knows that we will do it again. And in the ancient world, nothing brought greater surety of God's forgiveness and God's blessing than to shed the blood of an innocent animal to cancel out our mistakes, to cancel out our sin. This is hardwired into the human machine. And we can't get away from it. It's it's in here so deep, we can't get it out. C.S. Lewis says it like this, and this is a bit lengthy, but I think it, it, it says it well. He writes in this, this bit he wrote, right and, right and wrong is clue to meaning of the universe. He says this. There have been differences between our moralities, But these have never amounted to anything like a total difference. If anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teaching of, say, the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans, what will really strike him will be how very like they are to each other and to our own. Think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle, or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might as well just try to imagine a country where two and two made five. 
Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining. It's not fair before you can say Jack Robinson. None of us are really keeping the law of nature. If there are any exceptions among you, I apologize to them. They had much better read some other work. For nothing I'm going to say concerns them. And now turning to the ordinary human beings that are left. I hope you will not misunderstand what I'm going to say. I'm not preaching, and heaven knows I do not pretend to be better than anyone else. I'm only trying to call attention to the fact, the fact that this year or this month or more likely this very day, we have failed to practice ourselves the kind of behavior we expect from other people. There is a compass in each of us, whether we are religious or not, that knows when we are pointed in the wrong direction and engaging in something that points us in the wrong direction. We know what is right, and we know that we're continually falling short of it. And this is how we as Christians arrive at this practice today. In modernity, this practice that's still relevant for us today called the Eucharist. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is sacrificed for our sins. His body is broken. His blood is shed to atone for us. Why? Because the need for atonement is hardwired into us. And that might be hard for you to say amen to this morning. But the truth about atonement is is that it is our issue. It's not God's issue. And without human beings, concepts like atonement would not even exist. Because it's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. We believe that whether we deny it at face value or not. And the thing about atonement is... Without it, on some subliminal level, we will not allow God entrance into our lives. God knows this. He understands us so completely, so deeply, that he inserts himself into the world of matter and his son Jesus Christ, who dies a brutal death for us, who inserts his teaching into his disciples and they carry it on and That's what we're here learning today. And God does this so that we might deem ourselves atoned for. And this might be hard for you to imagine this morning. But atonement is often taught as something that is all about... It's kind of like Jesus is, is taught of as this kind of wrath shield between us and God, as if God's default position is just anger and bitterness like an old dude that has anger management issues. And the truth of the matter is God is love. But even though we understand that intellectually, there's something in us that says, I can't quite connect with that. Why do I feel like God hates me? Because you're human. Because we bring this need for atonement to the God of the universe. And the truth about atonement is, is it doesn't change God's view of us so much as it changes our view 
of God's view of us. We were not made for atonement. Atonement was made for us. And that's the truth that the Bible is trying to get across. It's why at the Last Supper, Jesus could have said something different, but he said this in Luke 22. He took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus Christ could have said, This is my body given for you. This is my blood given for you. Because God hates you in a default position. He can't stand you. You're repulsive to him. So, that's why I'm doing this. No, it's for us. Jesus did this for us, not for God. His body is for us. His blood is for us, not for God, but for us. And here is why sacrifice and bloodshed and atonement follow us down throughout history. And today they arrive at our doorstep in this ritual we call the Eucharist. Because you carry weights, and I carry weights around with me all the time. About what I might have done last week or what you did last night. When you were unkind, when you took what you wanted at the expense of another person, when you just shifted the truth a little bit to to, to work in your favor. When you cheated. The hundreds of times in the past 24 hours where in the privacy of your own mind you harbored thoughts of harm, and judgment, and cruelty, and selfishness. And no one knew it, but you knew you did, and you knew that those thoughts weren't right. And you savored them anyway, and you walked them to the end of the line. And you got some sort of temporary good feeling out of judging another person, out of having unkind thoughts about another person. And like it or not, this morning, if you're here and you're a Christian, it is those things that shout at us when we think of God. When we inwardly assent toward God. When we go to Him in prayer, when we're being tempted and something in us wants to ask for help from God with that temptation, but we're gunned down by these things that pop into our mind, thoughts like, how can you ask for help in this? If, God, if, you were really, if you really loved God, you'd never consider such a wicked and dark thing. That's why we need atonement. This is why Jesus says in that passage, speaking of the Eucharist, one of the most powerful words in all of Scripture, and that is the word remember. This is my body, this is my blood, eat fully, drink deeply, I love you, I'm not alarmed, I have atoned. You are welcome in my house and at my table, yes, even you, yes, even for that. The Eucharist is not something lofty and complex. It is lowly and human, and it is a reminder to us of unattainable grace. And that is a hard teaching to accept. Grace is the hardest thing to accept in a Western world of self-reliance and self-made people. 
where we aim for something and we get it. We cannot earn the love and the mercy of God. Mercy that is earned is not mercy at all. You are not invincible. You are not superhuman. You are human. And the challenge of the Christian life that we are ever moving toward is to close all of these gaps in our life where mercy isn't and where grace isn't. That is what this is all about. When our life often looks like a timeline with spots of grace here and there, interspersed with sins and mistakes, followed by good deeds to offset them. Jesus is just wanting the whole thing to be mercy. Mercy is the only constant we are able to return to if we are living the life that Jesus wants us to properly. We do not bring our achievements to the table of God and say to him, see how much I love you? Look what I've done for you. Look how hard I've worked for you. No, we bring everything that we've messed up, our rags and our mistakes, and Jesus offers himself in our place. That is the Eucharist that is in need of reclaiming. That is what this is all about. Not a communion experience, a Lord's Supper experience, a, a interaction with the Eucharist that we take, but one that we receive. And that's what Jesus wants us to remember. Can we stand? God, there's something in us that in the midst of a busy life is ever reaching out. I don't know why that is. I don't know why it is you have um, left this antenna in our lives that is always trying to find your signal. But it is. And God, it can be so hard when we have that desire to know you and yet when we sit down in in prayer or in study or in worship to explore that desire, we sense a wall there. And God, would you help us to realize that that wall is there because it's trying to remind us that this is something that we can't earn. It's, It's only something we can accept. It's only something we can receive. That is the only thing that unlocks the door we're wanting to get through. And God, I just want to thank you for moments of frustration where we sense this wall. Because you're refusing to let us in illegally. You're refusing to let us into your space, into your presence, with any shred of us thinking we deserve to be there. Thank you for that grace in our lives. God, forgive us for making this about something that it's often not. Thank you for your love. Amen. So, I'm going to take communion now. (laughs) And um, you know what's one of the greatest things about communion? And I mean this in a good way, not in a judgmental way. It's wonderful to look around the room and see people moving towards these tables that are just as messed up as I am. (laughs) And... As we approach these tables as a community this morning, may we remember 
that the blood of Jesus Christ levels all mountains, it raises all valleys. There is no better or worse. We all enter in through this narrow gate of Jesus Christ. As we approach the table this morning, if there's something in your life that's been bothering you, uh, something you've made a mistake in or are making mistakes in steadily, don't over-spiritualize it. Don't get religious. Just talk to God about it and ask him to help you. But the response to the communion table isn't, God, help me fix this and this and this and this. The response is, thank you. It's thankfulness. If you think you deserve to be at the table, you don't. And that's the good news about Jesus Christ. So let's remember those things as we approach the tables today.